Good to see you this morning. We're um, here without Pastor Jamie, and uh, of course with this new setup, there's always adjustments, so pay no attention to the man behind the curtain there. Um, That fan is making it hard to hear. I'll try to speak up. We are in Romans 3, starting in verse 21, and there is a... Okay, I'm speaking through here. Great. There is a... This starts with, but now. So Romans 3.21, that we just read, but now. You can't start with a but now without wondering what came before. What was but then? What was back there? So we need to remember and remind ourselves what... Jamie has been bringing us through, and that is that there is, there's bad news. Jamie has been, if you've been coming the last few weeks, listening to his messages, it's been bad news. This but now goes all the way back to chapter 1. Ever since we, we got to chapter 1, verse 18, it's been Bad news all the way through chapter 1, all the way through chapter 2, into chapter 3. Chapter 1, it's bad news for the Gentiles. Chapter 2, Paul says, you know what? Even if you're Jews, it's still bad news. What is that bad news? Verse, Go back to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He refers to the good news. This is such... Uh, Scholars say that Romans is one of the greatest letters ever written in history. It's recorded in recorded history. It's just so beautiful. And one of the things that Paul does is he'll bring up a little topic. He'll talk about something else for a long time, and then he'll loop back and then talk about that thing that he mentioned. And it's woven like a tapestry all through Romans. It's just a beautiful, beautiful book. I have never actually had the guts to to preach through Romans, so Jamie's giving me an opportunity by, he's taking the risk here, and then he's letting me preach this little part of it, Um, and it's a beautiful part that I get to preach today. So in Romans 1, 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed, let me put on my glasses, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation, to everyone that believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So he's saying that there's good news. There's this, the gospel. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the good news of Christ. The gospel of Christ, for is the power of salvation. And then look in verse 17. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. We're about to see that over in verse 321, that the righteousness of God is made manifest. Wherein? For therein is the righteousness. Wherein? In the gospel. In the good news. In the, in the power of salvation. God's righteousness is revealed. 
What, what is this? I, I've, I've spent a lot of time this week looking at what is this, what does it mean when it says God's righteousness? When we were living in, in Myanmar for, you know, we lived there for months at a time, uh, the, the grocery stores will have kind of, um, they, they often won't have fresh goods because the fresh goods markets are in the streets. And so you go down to different alleys that you can have the vegetable market or the meat market, and it's, it's actually literally on the street. And they put their baskets of fruit or vegetables there, and they sit there uh, waiting for you to, to look at their carrots and say, yes, I would like some. And so Connie would, you have to do this nearly every day because they don't have enough to really stock up. And so a typical housewife in Myanmar goes every day. We tried to stretch it out as best we could. But uh, you go down there, you see these carrots, and, you, and Connie would say, okay, I want, I want one kilo of carrots. And they would pick up a scale. And they'd hold the scale in their hands, and the needle of the scale would be in their fist. They'd take a one kilogram weight, and they'd put that on the scale. And then they'd turn the scale and they'd start piling up carrots on the other side. And in their fist, they can feel the weight of that needle pulling one way. And they, when they pile up the carrots, they can feel it start to pull the other way. And as it pulls the other way, they let go and they hold on to the chain and they show that now the needle is pointing more towards the carrots than towards the one kilogram weight. Showing you that, okay, we have a, a kilogram of carrots. Now, I've always thought that when righteousness was, was referring to a scale, that it was a just scale. It was a fair scale. But actually, in secular Greek, the way this word was used, that was when the scale was brought into balance, that's when it was righteous. It was made right. The two sides were made right with each other. Now, the two sides are not equal. One's made of lead, one's made of carrots. But they are now in equilibrium. They have been made right with one another. That's the righteous word that's being used here is this idea of being made right. In the gospel, being made right with God has been revealed. But then look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed. So you, verse 17, you have the righteousness of God is revealed. Verse 18, you have the wrath of God is revealed. And then he spends rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, half of chapter 3, talking about how we are under the wrath of God. We are sinners before God. Look all the way over 320. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. 
So he spent all that time explaining. The Gentiles, you're sinners. The Jews, you're sinners. And the Jews say, what about the law? Yeah, that makes you more of a sinner because you knew better. That's, that, that's God's response there. Because it's like, yeah, you had the law. That made it worse. It made it, rec- you recognized, you were able to acknowledge, oh, I'm a sinner. I can't keep God's law. And then we get to verse 21. But now. But now, what? Now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested or made real. You see, God made a way that, is, that was, came in flesh and blood. He made a way to be right with him. And that has been not just shown, not just pointed to, but manifested, made real. When we show something to someone, we, we show them a picture or we describe it to them. But God, but the word that's used over and over is revealed or manifested. When you do that, that means the thing itself is there. You may have a cloth over a car or something. You pull it off and it's really there. Why that's important is that this isn't just some ethereal thing. This isn't just some mystical myth that, you know, the gods are doing these strange things in the heavens. No, God came down to earth in flesh and blood. The way of being right with God in your sin, under the wrath of God, the way of salvation was made real in Christ Jesus. God made his righteousness real. And that that is so important because we if we're going to stand on that and that alone, we better know the reality of it. We better be confident in the in in the truth that this has happened uh, for real. It was witnessed by the law and the prophets. And there were those in the Old Testament that that witness was enough for them to live by faith and to put their faith in the Messiah, in the one who was coming, because they knew they couldn't do it themselves. But now it's been made real. You see, we can't escape the wrath of God. This is... If you think of being saved, if I'm drowning and I need to be saved, I need to be pulled out of the water that I'm drowning in. And it, it, But the wrath of God, if you need to be saved, there's no place to go. There's no way that you can say, well, maybe if I go over there, I won't be under the wrath of God. Adam and Eve tried to do this. In their fear, they hid from God. In their shame, they covered themselves. In their guilt, they blamed other people. None of it worked. They were still under the wrath of God. 
And that's, that's how, we, how we respond to our sin, how we try to save ourselves and protect ourselves in our fear. We hide. In our shame, we, we cover things up and we put a facade in front of us. In our guilt, we, we blame others for what happened. We make excuses because we're guilty. But there's no place to go because it's the wrath of God and it will find you wherever you go. But a real path to be made right with God, to instead of escape Him, to draw close to Him, a real path has been made. Let's look at that. Even the righteousness of God so this right relationship, this justification, this, this way of salvation, which is by faith of Jesus Christ to all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. So how is this way? How do we, how do we take this path of salvation? How do we become right with God? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Jamie has been approaching the book of Romans from a perspective of the disunity that was happening in the Roman church between the Jews and the Gentiles. And this is a very interesting take uh, to go through Romans. And, and literally, Jamie could finish the end of Romans, and you go all the way back to chapter 1 and take another facet of it and work his way through that. So here, notice in verse 22, for there is no difference. What's he saying? He's referring to upon all them that believe. He's saying that it's, it's not the distinction that is not, uh, am I a Jew, am I a Gentile? The distinction is, you're all under the wrath of God. And we all come to God by faith. There's no difference. There's no difference for how the Jew comes to God. There's no difference for how the Gentile comes to God. There's no difference for how the young person comes to God, how the older person comes to God, how uh, people all over the world, any culture, any upbringing, any education, any finances, you come to God one way because you are all in the same place. You are all, the weight of your sin has pulled that scale and the arrow is pointing right at you. And God says there's one way to balance that scale, to bring it back. You are all in debt and it is only through faith that that can be brought up through the grace of God taking the debt that you owed and putting it on Christ. There's no difference. And so verse 23 explains that, for all have sinned. 
There's no difference. You all have sinned. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. When Isaiah Hill, Pastor, Pastor Hill, witnessed to my parents, to, specifically to my father, up in Quebec, he, my dad had studied all these different religions and really thought he knew a thing or two. And he, he said, he'd say to Pastor Hill, he'd say, well, you know, how did the light get here if God created the earth because of, you know, because of light years? It takes millions of years for, for the light to, to reach earth. So how do we even see it? And Pastor Hill is just, if you don't know him, he's just a, a regular Maine boy. Um, and he would say, I don't know about that, but I do know you're a sinner. <laughs> I know that for sure. And any question Dad would ask me, he'd go to Romans 3.23 and he'd say, I've sinned, you've sinned, you're a sinner. That's what we can know. And that puts us all on the same playing field. We're all sinners. And so the distinctions we see and we make between each other and between other people actually are hardly anything compared to our standing before God. You know, all the stuff we're going through right now, very little of it is going to matter in a thousand years. But your standing before God is going to matter. The things you're worried about for this afternoon probably will be taken care of in the next couple days. But the thing that we really need to worry about that lasts for eternity is that we are under the wrath of God because we are all sinners before God. We must, we need salvation. And the only way to come out from under the guilt that we are suffering under is through faith in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What is that faith? That faith is full and complete trust that I bring nothing to the table and God brings everything to the table. You see, the Jews are trusting in their ability to keep the law. And, and often, I think this is just a natural, there's two natural responses of man to God. One is rebellion. Just like, okay, God's, God's given us all this stuff. I get to decide how to use it. I'll do it my way. The other is self-righteousness. Of, I'm a good person. I think I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm nice to people. I do nice things. I, I give to charities. I help animals. I, all these nice things. Those are natural things and they're inside of us. And we, we even bring them into our Christian walk of, you know, God got a pretty good deal when he got me. You know, it wasn't so bad. And then he just added salvation on top of that. And we have this tendency to kind of think like, hey, I was doing good and I was doing good. And God's looking around and like, wow, that guy's killing it. I'm just going to 
push him, just give him a little nudge, give him Jesus, and then he'll get saved. No. You're sinners. You're dirty, rotten sinners. And God comes with everything, and we come with nothing. And that's faith. And if we're bringing our goodness, our ability to keep the law, our ability to impress God, if we're bringing that with us, it's not faith. Faith says, I've got nothing. There's this idea of a trust fall. Have you seen you've seen these people? They'll stand there, somebody's behind them, and they're not supposed to do anything. They're not supposed to catch themselves. They're just supposed to put their hands here and fall backwards. And somebody catches them. They trust. How much do you trust this person? Trusting God is just saying, okay, I, I throw myself completely at your mercy. And I trust that Jesus' work on the cross, his blood shed for me, I trust that his death and his resurrection is enough to pay for the guilt of my sin. That's what it means to come to God in faith. You see, God has revealed... This, this righteousness, this way to be right with him, he has also offered this justification to all, all who have sinned, which means all have sinned. So we, that is, that's offered to all, it is, it is, he's made this way, it is offered to all, and then Notice what he does. Verses 24 through 26 here. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption, through this purchase that is in Christ Jesus. Christ paid the price for us. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation so that's a, a, a sacrifice to appease God. A sacrifice to appease God's wrath. That's propitiation. Through faith in his blood. So how do we get this? Through faith. Through faith that Christ's shed blood was powerful enough to wash away my sins, to cleanse me. Through faith in his blood to what? To declare, to proclaim his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. So that we are going to be cleansed of our sins. Our sins are going to be paid for. And then once again, to declare, okay, he's proclaiming this message of good news. Listen to this, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, this path of reconciliation, that he might be, this is who God is in this whole process, that he might be the just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. God is playing two roles simultaneously. He is the just. 
He is the just judge. What does a just judge do? A just judge judges rightly. If we are, if we uh, are honest with ourselves, we have this impression that we want God to forgive us and a good, loving God would just forgive us. But the bad people out there, God really should not forgive them. Especially the people we don't like. He really shouldn't forgive them. That is our natural impression, that a loving God should just do something about the bad people and he should just forgive good people. And of course, I'm in the good people category. A just judge doesn't just willy-nilly forgive the people he likes and punish the people he doesn't. That's not justice. But God is a just judge. So he says, punishment must be paid. And if we're honest with ourselves, we truly are guilty. We're guilty of violating the law. You know, we wake up in the morning and we think, okay, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. Okay, I've only been awake four minutes and I've violated that one. I've broken that law. And the rest of the day doesn't look too good for the rest of the laws. That's, that would be being honest with ourselves. And if that is true, then a just judge has to judge rightly and say, you are guilty. But then, he's also simultaneously the justifier. He is the just judge. But then he stands up, he takes off his robe, he comes down off the bench, and he says, put the handcuffs on me. Lead me away to death. Because the just judgment for our sin is death. And that may seem so harsh, but if God is our creator, and he made us to glorify and obey him, and then we don't do that, then we're not doing what we were made for, so why should he bother to keep us around? The just judgment of violating God's law is that you are no longer. You don't get to keep doing that. The judgment is death. But the justifier, God as the justifier says, yes, put that death on me. I will take it on my back, my son, whom I love, my precious son, will be the perfect fulfillment of the law the one man who is not guilty will pay for the guilt of man's sin. And so, Christ dies. God is both the just judge and the justifier simultaneously. And we just simply put our faith, our belief, 
in the work that was done for us. Now Paul has an interesting thing. He's just made these, these three points about the righteousness of God, about the, the, the availability to all who believe, and about the being the just and the justifier. Now he's going to work backwards through those with a set of questions. And these are where we get to this idea of disunity in the church. He's directly addressing this here. Verse 27. Where is boasting then? So you have these people who are saying, hey, I'm a Jew, I've kept the ceremonial laws, and you're not. Paul just got done saying, uh, God was the just, and he was the justifier. There's no, <laughs> there's nothing else for you to do. You didn't bring anything to this, this, this courtroom here, other than guilt. That's it. Your sin came with you, and that's it. And he says, so where's boasting? Funny story. Um, when I was in third grade, we had a school competition and it was an academic competition. Everybody in the school had to participate, and you took different tests and different things. And one of the tests was a reading test, and you went in before, I don't know, the school administrators or something, and you read this little passage from a book. And so I finish my passage, I go in, and I really thought I was quite something in the third grade. For some reason, I had decided I didn't have to, but I wore a tie to school every day um, of third grade just because I thought I was special. Um, so I finished my passage. I finished this reading. And I, I get done and there's this long awkward pause. And I look at the judges and I say, I know I'm going to get a blue ribbon because I'm one of the best readers in my class. <laughs> And they just, they just looked at me and they said, okay, you're dismissed. And, of course, I did not get a blue ribbon um, for my reading. I, I got in the car that night and I told my mom that I read, I did really well. I did so well, in fact, that I told them that I was going to get a blue ribbon. And my mom said, what? You did what? Birch, you can't do that. And I'm like, but it's true. The other kids don't you read with expression, and I read with expression. Um, Mom explained to me that when you boast, when you brag, A, it's wrong, and B, it makes people really, really, really want to do the opposite of what, what you said that you deserve. Um, in our, our boasting, it was just it was a, a natural thing inside of me. I actually had to be told, that's wrong, don't do that. It makes people dislike you, and it's prideful. Um, where is boasting? In our salvation? In our walk of faith? Of trusting God? Is there any place for boasting? Is there any place for saying, hey, I'm doing pretty good? For I'm doing better than that guy? For comparisons in the church? 
for thinking that I am I I have something that this guy doesn't have. If you've both got Christ, then you both have way more than anything else you can lay claim to. And both of you are equal as sinners and equal as sons and daughters before God. Now he asks another question. Therefore, we, so then, um, by what law of works? This is verse 27. Nay, by, by the law of faith. So this is, it's, it's by faith. You didn't bring any works to this. Verse 28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. You did not bring work into this relationship. Verse 29. Now he gets into distinctions. What's the difference here? Is he the God of Jews only? No. Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes. Of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision, that's the Jews by faith, and the uncircumcision, the Gentiles, through faith. How are we justified? By faith. How are they justified? By faith. It's all the same way. And so he's speaking to those who have believed, who have put their faith in Christ. He's not evangelizing them here. He's telling them, he's establishing why they needed justification. And he's establishing the way of justification through faith. And he's saying, all of us came to God without works. Our works did not count for anything. And we came the same way through faith. So young person today, if you are thinking, these are not my people and I don't belong here, that is a very dangerous thought. I've had two men actually say something like that to me over the last ten years. Both of them left the faith and left their family. I didn't know it at the time to see what a red flag that was. But what it means is that my faith in Christ and their faith in Christ is not enough to overcome the differences between us. If, me, if you're saying, these aren't my people, then you're not elevating the gospel and the way of salvation and the fact that you are to put your faith in Christ and they are to put their faith in Christ and that both of you are sinners without any hope, without Christ. If, if, you, if you are finding your identity someplace else, then you have not made Christ your identity. Because we're accentuating those differences above the sameness that we have in Christ. 
So to say that these are not my people, if you're talking about a horizontal earthly level, that's probably true. That's the point of the church. The beauty of the church is that it's like a jewel that has all kinds of different people in it who have found Christ. And then when people walk in, they're like, wait a second. You all like different things. You all act differently. You all uh, uh, have different educations, have, have different enjoyments. But, so what brings you here? Oh, let me show you. Christ. Jesus Christ. That's what brings us here. That's what brings all of us together. In this distinct, this group with all these different distinctions. Why? Because of Christ. But when we say we don't belong here, we're making other differences. When we say that we don't belong with other Christians, we're making other differences more important than Christ is to us. But there's a flip side, too. For those of us who say they don't belong here, whoever they may be, they don't belong here because they're different. What about their faith? What about their position before God? Their, their, your position before God, before faith, was that of a sinner. Paul is working through this to show that you humbly come before God. He's the just and the justifier. He's the one who provides the way. And all you do is throw yourself at his mercy. All you do is, is, is give him, bring him nothing and give him everything all at the same time. So we have a tendency to see people that are different from us and say, yeah, they don't, they're not my picture. What about their faith? That's the real question. Where is their faith? Where does their hope rest? Where is their trust? Have they put their faith in Jesus Christ? His crucifixion and His resurrection to redeem them from their sins. Has, is that what, is that, has that happened in their life? If it has, we are more the same than we are different. Because the foundation of our lives is the same. It's built on the same thing. It rests on the same thing. The, the, the kingdom that we are now a citizen of is the same. The place we're headed, the eternity that we have is the same. And those things supersede the differences in, in personality and perspective and, and, and uh, outlook that we have. You see, it's no big deal for people to come together around something they all like. If they all act the same and think the same and like the same thing, I mean, this is why you have like 
I don't know, model train clubs. Nothing against model train clubs, but it's because all the people there like model trains a lot. And I think they're cool, but I'm not going to join a club. Because that's not what I'm about. It's no big deal. That happens all the time. But for people with a diverse background, uh, uh, a, a, a large differences in many cases, to all come together, there has to be something that's greater than that. That's more beautiful to them than anything else. And that's the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. down verse 31 and this is one of those things he mentions and he's going to loop back to a lot later on do we then make void the law through faith God forbid yea we establish the law so he's reminding he's, he's telling the Jews so am I throwing out the law now because we've got faith we can, we can sin all we want no we establish the law you see, the law before, verse 20, what was it saying to them? Before salvation, what does it say to us? You're a sinner. Verse 20, for the law is the knowledge of sin. That's all it is. To the, to the unbeliever, it's just, you're under the wrath of God, you have sinned. To the believer, with faith, the law becomes a thing of beauty. Think of David, how I love thy law. He's just, I mean, Psalm 119 is just this overflowing love for God's law. And our relationship to the law changes because it shows us by God's grace he has communicated with us of how how he, he works, what he holds as a standard of how to have, to continue this right relationship, to, to, to enhance this right relationship with God, is to know him and the, and, and the king that he is, the kind of king he is. And to recognize that, that he is a loving, merciful God. That we can take joy in the law. That we can see this as, as, you know what, I am not under condemnation of the law anymore. But I can walk by faith in Jesus Christ. And in that, I can know God more and more as I follow Him. As I live the way He, he designed me and made me to live. That I get to know that through God's commandments to me. That, that just, it just becomes a, a precious thing instead of God, you know, looking around the corner with his gun like, oh, I'm just waiting for him to mess up. As soon as he does, he's in for it. No. Why? Because we are justified by faith. We are no longer under condemnation. And so we can live, yes, rightly. Because we have a loving Father that made a way 
for us to escape his wrath, be saved from his wrath, and come to him justly, just as if I did everything right. That's how I can come before the Father. And he can look at me as a beloved, a loved son of his. Who wouldn't want to obey a father like that? Who wouldn't want to enjoy right relationship with a father that loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us? You see the beauty of that? As we sing these songs, it should be our response to how precious this truth of salvation, this truth that, that Jesus came to die and to save us from our sins, that that, that gift of grace has been given to us, we should, we should celebrate that, we should enjoy it. We should declare it back to God as praise to Him that He's the kind of God that would save sinners like us. Greg?